You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 436 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich, and Tracy won't be with us for this show. She's off visiting family, and I'm here at home holding down the fort, so if you don't mind listening to just the sound of my voice, we'll forge ahead and continue with the story of what happened when Longstreet moved against Burnside at Knoxville. As we said before, when Braxton Bragg decided to send James Longstreet off to eject Ambrose Burnside from Knoxville, it resulted in a significant reduction in the number of troops Bragg had available to man the lines at Chattanooga. Uh, Longstreet took his two infantry divisions from the Army of Northern Virginia, two artillery battalions with 35 guns, and the 5,000 troopers of Joseph Wheeler's Cavalry Corps. In all, this gave Old Pete about 17,000 men. But, of course, that meant those Confederate soldiers were being taken off the table as far as Bragg's ability to man the lines at Chattanooga. If we rewind the tape to September 18th, uh, the beginning of the major fighting at the Battle of Chickamauga, Bragg had about 66,000 men, including Longstreet's uh, just-arrived troops, compared to Rosecrans' 58,000 Yankees. Then, by October 1st, Bragg's strength at Chattanooga was down to 47,500, but the federal numbers had dropped to 35,000. However, Bragg dispatched Longstreet to deal with Burnside the first week of November, and so by November 23rd, just prior to the battles for Chattanooga, Bragg had an effective strength of only about 37,000 while Grant had built up his force at Chattanooga to 70,000 men. So, all of that's to say, uh, detaching Longstreet and 17,000 men for the expedition to retake Knoxville represented a significant risk for Bragg, and was obviously not a decision he would have made lightly. But, Bragg was hoping... 
A, that Longstreet would succeed quickly in defeating Burnside, and B, that victory 100 miles away up in East Tennessee would derail Grant's plans there at Chattanooga. We have a feeling, though, that purely military considerations probably accounted for half the reason Bragg was willing to detach Longstreet and lose 17,000 men from his force at Chattanooga. We have a feeling the other half of the reason Bragg was willing to detach Longstreet was that Braxton Bragg was more than ready to part ways with Old Pete, for reasons we've already talked about quite a bit. So, while on the face of it, it may not seem to make much sense for Bragg to reduce the number of troops he had available to man the lines at Chattanooga at a critical moment, he did have reasons for doing so. He was hoping Longstreet would succeed quickly and thereby derail Grant's plans at Chattanooga, and, considering their toxic relationship, plus Longstreet's recent failures in Lookout Valley, well, Bragg was more than ready to part ways with Old Pete. Bragg's November 4th orders to Longstreet called for Old Pete, quote, to drive Burnside out of East Tennessee. Bragg emphasized that, quote, the success of the plan depends on rapid movements and sudden blows. However, while ejecting the Yankees from Knoxville and doing it swiftly was a straightforward assignment, Longstreet quickly discovered that successfully completing his task wasn't going to be easy. Right out of the gate, Old Pete found that he was faced with significant transportation and logistical challenges. While the East Tennessee and Georgia Railroad, connecting with Knoxville, ran up through East Tennessee, Longstreet obviously wouldn't be able to simply hop on it and ride it the 100 miles up to Knoxville. No, he would only be able to use the railroad for the distance the Confederates controlled it. And then, even after the Federals were pushed back toward Knoxville, the portion of the railroad that had been behind their lines would have been wrecked, and repairing the tracks would be problematical. So from that point on, Longstreet would have to use wagons to haul supplies to his advancing forces. But, as you guys will recall, the Confederates had, for quite a while, suffered from a major wagon problem. Namely, they didn't have enough of them. Bragg had never had enough wagons to adequately supply his forces at Chattanooga, and now he wasn't going to be able to magically conjure up hundreds out of thin air to send off with Longstreet. That was going to be a big problem once Longstreet ran out of railroad. But Old Pete discovered that even using the East Tennessee and Georgia 
to transport his forces part of the way to Knoxville was not without complications. The tracks were in rough shape, and the locomotives and rolling stock were in poor condition. It took Longstreet eight days to complete the movement of his infantry and artillery to Sweetwater, Tennessee, 60 miles up the line. Well, the slow pace of Longstreet's movement, coupled with the rapid pace of his complaints, irritated Braxton Bragg, to put it mildly. The fractured relationship between the two generals is clearly seen in their communications during this time. In any case, Bragg had emphasized that, quote, the success of the plan depends on rapid movements and sudden blows, end quote. But, unfortunately for the Confederates, Longstreet's difficulties and his anything but rapid movement northward would ensure that, actually, there would be no sudden blows struck against Burnside. On November 11th, Longstreet complained to Bragg, quote, Instead of being prepared to make a campaign, I find myself not more than half prepared to subsist. As we talked about in the last show, uh, prior to his commitment of Longstreet to the Knoxville expedition, Braxton Bragg, by the end of October, had increased the number of Confederates pressuring Burnside in East Tennessee by sending first one division of rebel infantry and then another to join the Confederate cavalry that had been harassing the Yankees. And by the end of October, under this increased Confederate pressure, Burnside was reacting precisely according to Bragg's script and withdrawing his forces into an area right around Knoxville. Well, Burnside's supply situation in East Tennessee had never been very good. In fact, logistical concerns were the major reason it had taken the Federals two years to invade East Tennessee, despite Abraham Lincoln's fervent desire to liberate that Unionist region. You see, coming down from Kentucky, a Union army would have no easy direct rail connection to Knoxville, and so supplies would have to be hauled by wagon down to East Tennessee through the Cumberland Gap. At any rate, Burnside felt compelled to maintain a large garrison at Cumberland Gap to protect his rather precarious line of supply back to Kentucky, and so that left him with an effective field force of only about 14,000 men to occupy East Tennessee. All of that's to say that Burnside's situation in East Tennessee was far from secure even before Bragg up the ante by sending Longstreet to eject him from Knoxville. Well, after the start of Longstreet's movement, as, on the Confederate side, Old Pete and Bragg quarreled about the issues surrounding Longstreet's difficulties, 
On the federal side, Ambrose Burnside and Ulysses S. Grant became aware that the Confederates were undertaking a major effort to eject Burnside from Knoxville. By November 13th, Burnside was certain that Longstreet was coming for him. He told Grant that rather than making a firm defensive stand near Loudoun, southwest of Knoxville, where he might attempt to prevent the rebels from crossing the Tennessee River, he would instead withdraw his force toward Knoxville, where it would man the fortifications protecting the town. And Burnside laid out his reasons, telling Grant, quote, If we concentrate in the neighborhood of Loudoun, the enemy will have the advantage of being able to reinforce from the railroad. Whereas if we concentrate at Knoxville, not only the present force of the enemy, but all reinforcements would have to march some 40 miles before fighting. And Grant agreed with Burnside's plan. At this time at Chattanooga, Grant was still waiting for Sherman's troops to arrive on the scene, and he told Burnside that if he, Burnside, could hold off Longstreet for seven days, then that should be enough time for Sherman to show up at Chattanooga, and then Grant would send help to Burnside at Knoxville. So, Grant was asking Burnside to hold off Longstreet for seven days, and then Grant would send him help. Until that help arrived, though, Ambrose Burnside would be on his own. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1, since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Burnside didn't have much time to prepare for the approaching Confederates. Uh, Despite the delays, uh, after moving by rail and road, Longstreet's force appeared just south of the Tennessee River near the town of Loudoun on November 13th. Longstreet initially planned on approaching Knoxville from the south, but without enough wagons to carry his pontoons, he was forced to move his bridging equipment by rail as close to the Tennessee River as possible. This meant he would have to cross to the north bank of the river miles west of Knoxville, then strike east toward the town. 
and once across the Tennessee, he needed to bring the Yankees to battle as soon as possible, since a quick fight and victory was essential, considering his shaky supply situation. Well, on November 14th, the rebels lurched across the river under a rainy sky 40 miles southwest of Knoxville at Huff's Ferry near Loudoun. The crossing was made by Micah Jenkins' division. As you guys will probably recall, this was John B. Hood's division, but with Hood still sidelined by his Chickamauga wounding, Jenkins had been placed in command of it. In any case, as Jenkins crossed the river at Huff's Ferry, Longstreet's other division, commanded by Lafayette McClaws, diverted the Yankees' attention with a feint to the northeast. Farther to the east, a further diversion was undertaken by Wheeler's cavalry, who threatened Knoxville from the south. At Huff's Ferry, Jenkins met very little resistance as he crossed the river. He far outnumbered the Federals stationed at Loudoun, who were the men of Julius White's division from the 23rd Corps. And White quickly withdrew several miles eastward along the north bank of the river to Lenore's Station on the East Tennessee and Georgia Railroad. Already at Lenore's Station were about 5,000 soldiers of the 9th Corps, and these men had spent the last several days working to put up quarters they fully expected would be their homes for the winter. And the news on the 14th that the Confederates were crossing the Tennessee in force nearby came as a complete shock to these 9th Corps men. Corporal William Todd of the 79th New York noted, quote, This morning, just at daybreak, we received orders to pack up everything and be ready to move at a moment's notice. The orders were so unexpected that we hardly knew what to make of it. We had been working for the past week, building winter quarters and fixing up things for a winter's stay, and the idea of us being driven away by the rebels never once entered our heads. I had just finished my chimney in the afternoon previous, and it was drying splendidly. Nearly all the troops had built log houses, and a more comfortable camp for winter quarters I have never seen. Corporal Todd also recorded the state of affairs in the wake of the order for the troops to prepare to move out. Quote, A short time after receiving our orders, Lenore's station presented a very exciting appearance. Women running about here and there, packing up their furniture and bedding, preferring to leave their homes rather than remain there when the rebels had possession. Couriers and horsemen galloping about as if it was their last moment. Teamsters yelling and lashing their mules. Troops marching back and forward and batteries taking position. All so much changed from the quiet appearance of yesterday that a person hardly knew what to make of it.
Ambrose Burnside arrived at Lenore's station from Knoxville on the morning of the 14th to personally supervise things. He ordered White's 23rd Corps Division to turn around and move back toward the Confederate crossing site and slow down the rebels long enough for the Federal wagon train to get a head start on the withdrawal back to Knoxville. White's troops would be aided by Edward Ferraro's 9th Corps Division, which had been rousted from its comfortable bivouac at Lenore Station. After shaking out their divisions and advancing in line of battle, White and Ferraro drove the Confederate skirmishers back for a mile and a half toward the river until darkness, a pelting rain, and stiffening rebel resistance brought them to a halt. Burnside considered ordering a night attack on the Confederate bridgehead on the north side of the river, but he ultimately decided against it, instead choosing to stick with his plan and pull back to Knoxville. So, on the morning of the 15th, White's and Ferraro's Federals made their way back to Lenore's station, where, by early afternoon, they'd established a defensive position. The lead elements of the Confederate advance didn't come into contact with the Yankees at Lenore's station until about nightfall on the 15th. On November 16th, Burnside ordered the resumption of the withdrawal to Knoxville. Started before daylight, the march was slow going as the long column of artillery pieces, supply wagons, and infantry all slogged up the muddy Loudoun Road away from Lenore's station. Meanwhile, the Confederates were not idle. Although he hadn't pressured Burnside during the night, Longstreet, upon reaching Lenore's station, split his force in an attempt to prevent the Yankees from reaching the defenses of Knoxville. While Jenkins' division continued the direct pursuit of the Federals up the Loudoun Road, Old Pete sent McClaw's division north on the Kingston Road to try to reach Campbell's station before Burnside. Now, Campbell's station was 10 miles further up the rail line from Lenore's station, and if McClaws could get there and set up a blocking position, then the mass of Burnside's Federals coming up the Loudoun Road would be cut off from Knoxville and in a world of hurt, sandwiched between McClaws in front and Jenkins behind. And on that cold November day, for Burnside's Federals tramping up the Loudoun Road, the threat of being trapped by the rebels was palpable. A Ninth Corps soldier, Private Charles Nightingale of the 29th Massachusetts, said, quote, After marching some two hours, I stopped beside the road to rest, as I was very tired and had suffered with the chills during the night. While stopping, I met two or three of our boys, and after going a short distance farther, we proposed stopping and making some coffee, which we did, 
and I went to work as rapidly as possible and cooked me some meat, and had scarcely got it done when our rear guard of mounted infantry came along and said, Boys, throw away your knapsacks and double quick it, or the rebs will gobble you up. <laughs> Another Ninth Corps soldier in the 20th Michigan confirmed their perilous position, saying, quote, We had not hardly got out of sight of Lenore before our cavalry was driven in, and the enemy kept close on to us like a pack of hounds after their prey. Every mile or two the brigade was formed into line of battle, and as soon as the cavalry would come up, we would again march on. We marched in this manner about eight miles to Campbell's Station. On the 16th, Burnside's predicament, in what essentially became a race for Campbell's Station, forced him to abandon some of his supply wagons to speed the movement of his column up the muddy Loudoun Road. But, fueled by desperation, Federal combat units managed to reach Campbell's Station around noon, less than an hour before McClaw's Confederates. Meanwhile, Jenkins' pursuit of the withdrawing Yankees had been frustrated time and again by a succession of enemy blocking positions and unsuccessful Confederate flanking attempts. Although the Federals won the race to Campbell's Station, beating both McClaws and fending off Jenkins, there was sharp fighting there when Longstreet tried to hammer both enemy flanks and pull off a double envelopment with McClaws hitting the Yankees' right and Jenkins striking their left. However, unfortunately for the Confederates, it proved impossible to coordinate the assaults of the two wings, and so Burnside was able to successfully withdraw, under cover of artillery fire, to a ridge about three-quarters of a mile to the east. And from that good ground... With night falling, and with there being little chance the exhausted Confederates would be able to mount another attack that day, the equally exhausted Yankees could finally breathe a sigh of relief. And the Federals, most of them starting their third night without sleep, pulled out of their positions after dark and stumbled northeastward toward Knoxville. The race for the crossroads at Campbell's Station on November 16, 1863, and the ensuing fighting there, is usually a mere footnote in most Civil War histories, if it's mentioned at all. But it was significant nonetheless, since if Longstreet had won the race and managed to cut Burnside off from Knoxville, things would likely have turned out much differently for the Confederates there in East Tennessee. As it was, Ambrose Burnside was able to continue his withdrawal to Knoxville, where his troops will man the fortifications there. And so, as we'll see with the next episode, 
Longstreet's failure to catch the Yankees at Lenore's station and his inability to bag them at Campbell's station and quickly end the campaign, well, that all would have major repercussions for the rebels. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Knoxville Campaign, Burnside and Longstreet in East Tennessee by Earl J. Hess. Uh, We're fans of pretty much anything Hess writes, and this particular title is no exception. Uh, You know the drill. Uh, You can find a list of all of our book recommendations every last one of them, if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. As I cross the finish line with this episode, I want to take just a second and thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade for their support of the podcast. So a big thank you to Marco, Alex M., and David R., and thanks to Leroy E. for his donation. All right, I'm a big old introvert, so it's probably good I can't see all of you, but still, I'm tired of hearing myself talking. (laughs) And you might be too. Uh, So I better wrap it up. Uh, Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you'll be back for the next Knoxville show. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.